0: And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. (laughs) Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why do you worry about clothes? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles.
1: The the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, um, they truly are some of the most profound words ever uttered, and certainly some of the most profound you could ever read. Um, It's just striking to think that God came down and preached sermons, and we have them, and we can read them. And so we can come to this and in other sections of the Gospels and we can see the very words of God himself. And I hope that we continue to marvel at them. But to be honest, when I read through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, especially 6, sometimes it scares me to death. Because I hear that famous section of scripture, that one that so many people know, that one that even though I was not following Christ in a high school locker room I could quote, because it's just what we did before games. That famous section of scripture, I I sit here and I look and I, I don't know how often I pray like that. When it comes to fasting, I don't know that it's that I fast inappropriately, I just wonder, should I not be fasting? (laughs) Why don't I fast? I wonder, like, am I more concerned with money than I am the things of God? Because it sure says that that's not the way it's supposed to be, and yet sometimes in my heart, that's how it feels. I take great comfort in material things, in things that are tangible. As I've made my way through these lists of failures in the Sermon on the Mount, I just inevitably worry and grow anxious, which is exactly what it says I shouldn't do. I'm concerned about this or concerned about that and and I struggle with anxiety and and I just look at this list of how Jesus tells us to live and I wonder like, can I do this? Can I live up to this? This is such a standard. I have expectations of people, Um, I have expectations of the people in my home. My wife's name is Rachel. I have a son named Matthew. I have a daughter named Audrey. I have expectations of all of them. My kids will probably, um, the smallest one can't talk, but the biggest one talks a lot. And he, he would think that my expectations are unreasonable at times. One such expectation that he doesn't really disagree with, but I have, this is a strong conviction for me and my household. Those people who live in my house and are part of my family, they will be Boston Red Sox fans. This is a very serious matter in my house. My wife doesn't even care about baseball. She's a Red Sox fan. It was part of marrying me. I grew up rooting for sports teams from Massachusetts. So as a toddler, I had shirts with Larry Bird's face on it. It wasn't the most handsome man in the world, but he had an incredible mustache. And I loved Larry Bird because he had shamrock on his shirt. My favorite football player growing up was Drew Bledsoe. I was incredibly suspicious of this clown named Tom Brady when he came along. I've, I've changed my mind. I like him now. But I grew up as a Boston sports fan. And I have that expectation. My son doesn't even know it. He's a Red Sox fan already. He has a Red Sox pillow. He has jerseys. He has a, a, a Mickey Mouse hat. And Mickey Mouse is wearing a Red Sox jersey. How's that for indoctrination? Take his favorite character, put a Red Sox jersey on it, you're a Red Sox fan now. Thank you very much. I have these expectations, but these are, if I'm honest with myself, optional expectations. These are optional things. Anyone in my home is allowed to pull for any sports team they want other than the Yankees. I really don't care. These are optional expectations. I do have... Much more stringent expectations, though. Um, For one, I think that it's entirely reasonable that I expect my heart to continue pumping blood throughout my body for the rest of the day. It's just kind of necessary for life, and so I expect to have a fully functioning heart for the rest of the day. I don't think that that's altogether unreasonable, but it does tell me that there are different kinds of expectations. There are some that are preferences. There are some that are just reality. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you'll see Jesus lays out all sorts of expectations, and for the life of me, I can't find one that's optional. It's like they're all just intrinsic to life in the kingdom. He never tells you to fast. He just says those that are a part of my kingdom do it like this. Doesn't say you pray. He says like those in my kingdom pray like this. He just describes it as a fact. A fully functioning heart works like this, and it it creates in me a, a greater sense of anxiety because look at this, Jesus expects over and over and over righteousness, and first and foremost, he expects a righteousness that is exceedingly great. If we go all the way back to Matthew 5, 20, he says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, for Jesus' audience, that would have been an incredibly demoralizing requirement. For For the vast majority of the crowd, they would say, Well, then who can be in your kingdom? These are the most holy people we know. The most righteous people, we know these are the people that love the law of God and do everything they can to do it. How can we be more righteous than them? Jesus says, yeah, to be like members of my kingdom, they're more righteous. Their righteousness is greater than even that. He goes on. Jesus expects a righteousness that is mature or complete, or the word he uses, perfect. The end of Matthew 5 he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now it's not saying that we should be sinless. But it is saying that in Christ you have a perfect holiness before God. A perfect righteousness before him. But as we live our lives, as we engage in the process of sanctification, our actual holiness should be tracking towards that perfect holiness. We should be maturing We should be becoming perfect or perfecting. And then if that's not enough, he says this. Jesus expects a righteousness that is lived out today, which is the part that caused me the most angst. Because all those other things, that I would have a great righteousness and that I would have a perfect or mature righteousness, those things I can even believe in and trust that it will one day be true in eternity when everything, all the temptations and desires of this world have gone away. But Jesus makes it quite clear. He expects a righteousness now. Matthew 6 begins this way. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. In order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. He's saying, Don't practice your righteousness for the acclaim of mankind. But the implication there is, you will practice your righteousness. Your righteousness is a present reality. And the anxiety sets back in because I look at my life and I wonder how much of this can I do? How much of this can I do? Back to my heart that I think I have every reasonable expectation it would work as it should. I have no knowledge whatsoever, or very, very limited knowledge, of how the heart works, but I am so thankful that there are men and women who have studied it and can explain It has valves, it has chambers, it has blood coming through and blood going out and it supplies the circulatory system, it deals with all these things. And when a part goes wrong, when it's sick, we can do something about it. Or you can prevent the sickness, you can exercise. Like there are people that understand how this stuff works and they can explain how this heart should function, which is so necessary for life. And that's what Matthew six is. Jesus calls us to a righteousness that is great, that is mature and that is now. And then he says, and let me explain to you what that looks like. Now this chapter is not about prayer for the sake of prayer, or fasting for the sake of fasting, or any other such thing. This chapter is illustration after illustration of when you will live up to these righteous standards, this is what it looks like. It's story, illustration, story, illustration. And if we want to see where he's going, we can jump to the end of chapter 6 and look at Matthew six thirty-three. This really helps us understand everything Jesus is getting at. Jesus says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. After talking about prayer, fasting, money, and worry, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and righteousness. What he's saying is that the kingdom should have such a priority in your life should have so much primacy in your life that there should be nothing else on the level of God's agenda in his kingdom that it colors everything. That prayer would now be righteous because you've let the kingdom infect your heart. That that fasting would now be righteous because the kingdom is moving through you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It is to be a part of our daily, continual priorities. Now since we're at the end of the chapter, I just wanna walk our way back through it, and we'll get to the prayer here in a second. At the end of chapter six, he's dealing with worry. He asked this question in 28, why are you so anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. And what Jesus is doing is he's setting up a problem, and then he's gonna answer it with what it looks like to seek his kingdom first. Verse 28. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven Will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? What a scathing accusation, you of little faith. Therefore, seek first the kingdom of God and righteousness and do not be anxious, saying what shall we eat and what shall we drink and what shall we wear? In this case, Jesus is saying seeking my kingdom first, seeking the righteousness of God first, looks like trusting me with these things. It looks like refusing to rely on your own abilities, on your own wit, on your own intelligence to take care of these things. Trust me and seek first the kingdom of God and righteousness. And then back up at the begin at the in verse 19 deals with what will master us. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The question being asked here is, what's going to control you? Your your monetary gains, your material possessions, the things you chase after, the things you can touch and see, or God and the treasures that he can extend in heaven? This is what he says in verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. This is a fascinating way of, uh, of describing this, Jesus. The eye in, is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, the whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Jesus says, yeah, when it comes to money over me, don't even play with this. Be obsessed with me because in that you have health. And when you have health, you have light, you have truth. Do not be mastered by money. Be mastered by God. Seek first his kingdom and righteousness. Back up even further. He says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces. Why? so that their fasting may be seen by others. You see, Jesus says, like, I have a real problem with you engaging in some sort of religious act of piety so that your fellow man will be impressed with you. What kind of silliness is that? Why would you do that? That's not seeking first my kingdom. That's not seeking first my righteousness. Rather, when you fast, he says in verse 7, Anoint, or 17, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is saying, like, your concern should not be with the opinion of anyone other than me. Your religious devotion should not be for your neighbor's sake. It will affect your neighbor, and it should affect your neighbor in a good way, but it is for my sake, and we'll see very soon, it is for my glory. Don't you dare rob my glory and give it to a human being, a created thing. You will fast in private, and your father will reward in secret He says in verse five, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues. These men, there were certain times of day where prayer um, was prescribed and they would, they would either be walking to a synagogue or to the temple itself um, to pray at this certain time and it, it seems as though men would time it so that when the time for prayer came, they just so happened to have not been there yet, they would be at a nice, busy intersection where they could be seen by many. And they would just lift holy hands and pray. And Jesus is not impressed that anyone would do such a thing to be seen by others. Truly I say to you, he says, they have received their reward. And then in verse six, but when you pray, Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is not a condemnation of public prayer. This is not saying that the only way you can pray is in private. This is saying that the only person you're praying to is God, not to other people. And I gotta tell you as someone who gets to talk in a situation like this and prays in front of people a lot, this one really hit home because I've had to think how often When I pray, am I still teaching? How often am I praying and my motives have shifted from conversation with the Father himself to I get five more minutes on my lesson and I'm gonna mask it as prayer. Jesus says you will pray to the Father, not for anyone else, not for anyone else. Now, my tendency is to see here that Jesus is renouncing the obviously hypocritical nature of the scribes and the Pharisees, the ones that he's truly speaking to at the moment. But they're just kind of his current context. To be honest, he's speaking to far, far more than that. Jesus is exposing the effects of sin on our souls. He is exposing the sin of self and of pride he's saying in all these things, you want the glory. You want to be seen. So not the point. And he explains to us this righteousness that is all-consuming. And then he explains it further. And he gives us this prayer. So many of us know it. And it is such a profound prayer. He says, instead of praying so that you would be seen in public, instead of using so many words and just wanting God to like finally give in and give you what you want because you've badgered Him to death, pray then like this: "Our Father in heaven." Quite a way to open up. Our Father in heaven. Who can call God their Father? This is an incredibly Christian prayer from the beginning. In John 8, Jesus tells the Pharisees and the other religious leaders, if God were your father, you would love me. Jesus qualifies who are the children of God, not just those who were created by him. It's those who have been adopted in, who have been grafted in, who are now co-heirs with Christ. You are children of God if you Love me, Jesus says. So we have this incredible relationship with a father, a very um, loving and uh, relational, a very close relationship with a father. But then Jesus qualifies it in heaven. So lest we get too comfortable with this incredible being, let's not forget that he's in heaven, that he is the sovereign the one who looks over everything that's created and says, that is mine. The one who owns everything, the one who has all the power to do with it what he wants. He's our Father. (laughs) How scandalous does this prayer open up? Our Father in heaven. It really orients your prayer right away, doesn't it? Um, the uh, The great reformer John Calvin Um, He wrote a number of commentaries, but is most famous for um, a number of books that, when you compile them, are just known as the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And this is the opening line of those books, very first line in the book. John Calvin says this, Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. You see, what Calvin is saying is he's saying, like, in order to even do theology, which is what he's about to do in that book, in order to even pray well, you better know who you are, and you better know who you're talking to. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself in some serious trouble, or at worst slash best, making a mockery of the God of the universe, even on accident. Our Father in heaven. And then this line should weigh heavily on our hearts. Hallowed be your name. One of those King James words that snuck into our modern translations. Hallowed be your name. Literally, the word means to sanctify your name, to perfect your name, um, to make your name holy. But you could talk about it in a number of ways. Most revered be your name. Most loved be your name be your name respected be your name feared be your name this is saying that we should have a right perspective on whoever it is that bears this name and then we know in antiquity especially in judaism your name carries a lot of meaning god reveals his name as yahweh to moses in exodus 3 In his name is bound up all of his character, all of his nature. His name is so holy because it is the accurate representation of who he is. All of his goodness, all of his power, all of his supremacy, all of his grace, all of his justice, it's in his name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. If you understand those first two lines, it's almost impossible to mess up the rest of the prayer. Those first two lines set the stage for everything else that's going to follow. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now to confess my own failures, I've used your will be done as kind of a cop-out for, I'm gonna ask for something wild and because I don't believe you'll do it, I'm gonna say, or your will be done at the end of my prayer. But that's not, what this, that's not what these lines are asking us to do. This is not me saying, my brother-in-law has cancer, God, please heal him, but if not, your will be done, although technically true. True. This is saying, God, I want, to, I want your name to be so revered. I want your name to be so hallowed that what it's like in heaven, like with the angels praising your name in perfection and in joy and that there's no unrighteousness there, I want that here now. Like your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. Like, I want that here and now. And Jesus did come, and he inaugurated the kingdom, but it's not fully here yet. And when he rose from the dead, he inaugurated the new creation, the first body that will never again die. But it's not here yet. And when I pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I want, I am saying, God, I want everything about you. I want all of your goodness to infect this world. I want the kingdoms of darkness to be pushed out. I want your gospel to be effective. I want people to know you. I want your name to be hallowed. I want your name to be holy and respected. I want your kingdom to come and crush anything that opposes it. This is not really a nice prayer. This is a pledge of allegiance to a kingdom that is dead set and will achieve its goal on destroying anything that opposes it. Your kingdom come, your will be done right here like it's already being done in heaven. And then we get to make our requests. God, give us this day our daily bread. And to be honest, I don't really understand this one because I don't live in an agrarian society where I wonder where my next meal is coming from. Some of us might have experienced such a life, but I've never really had that question of whether or not I'll eat at the end of today. But it would be good for me to remember that whenever I go to the store to buy bread and milk for my family and I swipe my card, that that was not anything that I did, that that was God giving me today my daily bread. That the money in my account is God giving me my daily bread that the fact that my house is warm for my wife and my kids is God giving me today my daily bread. I wish that I would not so quickly forget that and think that if I could just keep all these, if I could just keep everything in the air and spin enough plates, like I can manage this. And Jesus says, no, come and say, God, I can't do this. You provide for us. Then he says, Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now this is a complicated line. Some of us look at this and think, wait, am I not forgiven if I can't forgive others? Do I have to forgive everybody else before God will forgive me? Is that how this works? I thought it was by faith. Yes and no. What he's saying is that Those who have truly experienced the redemptive grace of God, imagine your debt to God compared to someone else's debt to you. Which one's greater? Those that have experienced God's grace and forgiveness and his truly transformative mercy, forgiveness is just natural for us. I forgive little because I've been forgiven much. So he says that whenever... (laughs) Let me forgive other people like you've forgiven me. That's the request. And then he ends it with and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Bible says that God does not tempt us, but I believe he tests us. And when I'm able to withstand the assault of the enemy, when I'm able to withstand the encroachment of sin, I need to thank God that he's delivered me from temptation. And when I'm feeling like I can't, when I'm feeling like I just can't do this, when I read the Sermon on the Mount, and I feel like I can't do this, I need to trust God that he can do this in me. Now, this could look like an isolated set of worshipful lines and lines where we request certain things that we need just to live this life. Maybe. But when I do it like that, I think that I have um, I've segregated what shouldn't have been pulled apart. I'll give you an example. Um, at my house, we've been in a particularly complicated time lately with our son. He is wanting to test all the boundaries. And I can't tell you how often his mother and I have prayed, God, give Matthew an obedient heart. Give him a heart that wants to obey his mom and dad. And I think that that's an appropriate prayer. Now, let me tell you why I think I prayed it. Because I'm so tired of fighting him. I want God to change his heart. I want him to obey for my sake. I want him to obey because it's starting to get really annoying that he's always fighting me on everything. The Lord's prayer says, no, you want him to obey because when he does, he's being obedient to the Father by submitting to the parents that the Father has given him. You see how I have asked for something right with the wrong motives. Like I want Matthew to listen to us so that my life will be easier, not so that God will be glorified. And how much are those two prayers different, even if they sound very similar. And so I think this this prayer is not an isolated set of propositions and requests. Everything on this prayer, I believe, hinges on our desire that God's name would be glorified. Everything. Everything. Why do I want the kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? So that he will be made famous, that his name will be revered and will be hallowed. Why do I want him to provide for me the things that I need to live this life? Because when he does, he is made much of and he is glorified. Why do I want him to teach me to forgive like he's forgiven me? Because in both cases, his name is glorified. Why do I want him to help me withstand temptation? because I want his name to be glorified. Hallowed be your name affects and drives and enables in many ways the rest of the prayer to even take place. And I would say the rest of the chapter. So when I fast, I do so in secret, not to the praise of man because I want his name to be glorified. When it comes to material possessions, I trust him way more than those because I want his name to be glorified. And when it comes to not being anxious about the daily things of this life, I trust him because in so doing, I'm making much of his name. And then I come to this and think, okay, still don't know how to do that very well. That is still so complicated and difficult. How do I make his name famous. It brings to mind um, a small section in Matthew 22, where Jesus is asked, basically, what's his favorite law? He says this in Matthew 22, verse 37. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's how I make his name hallowed. That's how I make it great. I love him with all my heart, all my soul, and all my mind. And I find it fascinating that way back in chapter 5, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. And then he teaches us what it looks like to live this righteous life. And then later on he says, yeah, and when you live this righteous life, all the law and the prophets are fulfilled. I still feel like that's difficult to do, though. I still wonder if I am able to do this. Um, It's times like these that I think it's imperative that we reflect on the gospel In Matthew's gospel, Jesus hasn't yet died, he hasn't yet rose, and he hasn't yet ascended to the Father's right hand, but it's important as we look at his description of life in the kingdom that we reflect on the gospel. Because I think when we do, we'll realize that Jesus, when he expects a righteousness that is great, that is mature, and that is lived out today, and when he explains a righteousness that is all-consuming in us, that he will then enable a righteousness that is real and true today. Just like I have no idea how to make my heart pump, just does. It's an involuntary muscle. There's all these complicated electrical signals going to it. It just does. I also like to say, I don't know how I'm gonna live out Jesus' ethic laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, but I'm gonna trust him that he can just do it through me that he can make this work, and it's important. If we go to Ephesians 4, we see Paul explain the gospel to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17, Paul says this, "'Now this I say and testify in the Lord, "'that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do "'in the futility of their minds. "'They are darkened in their understanding, "'alienated from life in God because of the ignorance "'that is in them due to their hardness of heart.'" They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, he reminds the church. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, he's saying, you died to the self that couldn't live the Sermon on the Mount which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. That's baptism. To put on this new self. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What Paul's saying there is that we have the new self because we have Christ in us. And when I, can't, when I can't figure out how to live the Sermon on the Mount, I need to remember the gospel that there is Christ in me, working through me. And then we saw this diagram a couple of uh, weeks ago. When I read the Sermon on the Mount and I see Jesus' unbearably high ethic and I say, I can't do this, I need to stop and hear the Spirit say, you can't, but I can through you. And I need to repent of my foolish thoughts about I need to muster up some sort of innate ability that is in Ryan Vincent to live this way and to just let the new life take over and say, God, work in me so that your name will be hallowed. I need to repent of that way of thinking and believe and trust in him that he can do it in me. And probably more than anything, I just need to pray. Now, In Colossians 1, we'll end here. In Colossians 1, Paul actually prays the Lord's Prayer. It just doesn't look like it. But it's amazing, he describes to the church in Colossae how he prays for them, and all the bits of the Lord's Prayer are there. It's amazing how Paul does this. He says this in Colossians 1, starting in verse nine. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will Knowledge of his will, that is obedience to his in into righteousness in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. All the bits of the Lord's prayer are there. It's a really good reminder. Jesus is, um, as he teaches through the Lord's Prayer, Paul comes in and says, and you can live this because you are no longer in the kingdom of this world. You're now a member of the kingdom of God. and He can work out this righteousness in you. And the Spirit truly does enable us to pursue a righteousness that is greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, that is more mature than we could ever fathom and that we can live right now here and today. We do need a gospel reminder whenever we come across these things and we need to repent and believe that he can actually work these things through us. Now, I wanna end our time actually praying the Lord's Prayer together. Um, So I'm gonna ask Morgan to come up. Morgan is going to, uh, we've broken the prayer down into four main sections. She's going to give you the section and then after she gives you each section, I want you to spend just a few moments praying through that particular idea and then I will close out each idea for us. So.
0: Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come.
1: Our Father in heaven, Make the majesty of your name our greatest affection. Give us an ever increasing love of all that you are, of all your beautiful qualities, of your perfect holiness, of your astonishing supremacy, and of your endless and gracious mercy. Press such things into our minds and hearts to such a degree that our unquenchable desire is that your kingdom and your rule would expand to every last inch of this sinful earth. Give us minds and hearts that want the kingdom and give us hands that will work to carry it forward. May we find our deepest, most satisfying joy in obedience and in conformity to Jesus and to your kingdom.
0: Give us this day.
1: Though many of us are unfamiliar, Father, with concern over what we will eat today, and though some certainly know what that's like, we pray that you would make abundantly clear how insignificant our abilities to care for ourselves truly are. As we ask for your provision, always remind our arrogant hearts that money in the bank is from you, that job security is from you, And that comfortable retirement counts are from you. Even just enough money to make it through today is from you. Breath in our lungs is from you. The sun, the moon, and stars are from you. Without your daily provision, we are nothing. And even when we fail to acknowledge you, we lean on your goodness to care for us in spite of us.
0: Forgive us.
1: Father, we in the most confident and trusting way beg you to reconcile us to you, to forgive the endless string of offenses committed against you and against your name. May the mercy found in Christ transform our hearts. We ask that your grace would move our hearts further from sinful desires and that we would become gracious and forgiving ourselves. God, make your seemingly reckless kindness one of the beautiful hallmarks of this church.
0: Deliver us.
1: Finally, Father, we pray against those kingdoms opposed to yours. Satan seeks to devour and destroy, and you are our hope and our deliverer. Make us wise to temptation and give us the resolve to resist the evil one. Father, we ask for a righteousness that expels what is wicked in us. And we ask all of these things in your great, your perfect In your hallowed name, amen. Amen. There will be people down front. If you'd like to to talk about this further or if you'd like one of us to pray with you, we'd love to do that. Otherwise, you are dismissed.